It is hard, I think, for us to believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthian church with only love on his mind. It's hard for us to imagine that for all the ways in which he complains and chastises and exhorts and frankly kind of loses his mind about their behavior, that what he in fact is really motivated by is the profound love that he sees manifested in Jesus Christ from God and the way he is absolutely convinced that we're supposed to manifest that love in the world. That we would kind of, as it were, enter into this love engine. That we'd be part of it. And that it would move us into the world and that it would actually move the world forward into that ultimate destiny which Jesus referred to generally as the kingdom of God. Paul has this grand vision, this sweeping sense of where this is all headed. But he turns his backs on the Corinthians for one minute, and they just act crazy. They act foolish. They, they, they seem to have completely missed the point in his mind. And so he writes this letter to start over. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Let's start again. Let's start again. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the subject of what it means to embody love, to, the, to experience the embodied love of Jesus Christ in worship, that's at the heart of what he's concerned about. And I want to pick up this morning at chapter 11, starting in verse 17, in which Paul writes, Now in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have been There have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, And said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Let us say thanks be to God. I have here bread and cup. If you have been in church, you have seen bread and cup many times. Depending upon the tradition that you grew up in, you have seen it come in many forms. If you go into a Roman Catholic church, it is locked behind a a door and protected there until it's time to be received by the people of God. If you've been at a charismatic church, it might have been grape juice and a potato chip. This great variance between how we hold the bread and the cup and how we see it challenges our understanding of what we believe about it and about Christ's presence in it. But to help us think about this a little bit more deeply, I want to I get you to have a different image altogether in your mind. Imagine a queen. What's the picture that you see in your head when I say, imagine a queen? Now, I imagine that chances are you're picturing, of course, a woman. And I'll bet there's a crown and a throne. Maybe royal robes, perhaps some object in her hand, or like a scepter. Symbols of power and authority. And then if you wanted to be more specific, perhaps you would imagine Queen Elizabeth II. How often do you think does Queen Elizabeth II appear in the form that I just imagined with you, with crown and robe and throne? Pretty much only once a year. And she only appears that way once a year to begin each session of the British Parliament. Each year, often in November, the Queen begins Parliament by making what is called the Queen's Speech, in which she will describe what the government intends to do during that session of Parliament. And the Queen's Speech is the culmination of an elaborate and carefully choreographed ceremony that includes having her crown the imperial state crown. It's not just any crown. It's that particular one. She has several. And it has to be carried from Victoria Tower to the Houses of Parliament in its own state horse-drawn coach. And when she enters into the Houses of Parliament, there are two attendants, one who carries the sword of state and another the cap of maintenance. I saw the Queen's speech once on TV. And I was with a bunch of British people, and they had grown up seeing this. So it was not a big deal to them. 
And it was on TV, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's the Queen's Speech. And I'm like, oh. So I'm trying to learn cross-cultural experience here. I sit down, and I'm watching, and I watch her process with this enormous robe, this huge, what's called the Parliament's robe of state, and it's just enormous. And she comes, and then she does that thing that queens, we imagine queens do all the time, but she probably only does this one time a year. She sits on a throne. And they carefully, oh so carefully, take this priceless crown and they set it upon her head. And I just watched as in a moment, this sweet, petite, elderly lady becomes a nation. In that moment, she becomes Britain. She is the full embodiment of all of the government, all of the culture, all of the people who identify themselves with that nation state. She's all of it. That, friends, is called embodiment. In that one singular moment, she is Britain. Now this obviously is very much like this table. And of course, it's very much not like it, right? It's like it insofar as we believe that the full embodiment of Christ is present with us when we gather for his Lord's table to receive the Lord's Supper, as Paul describes it. It's totally like that. And yet it's totally unlike that. Because you got to be a pretty special person. In fact, you have to have had a great, 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 great grandfather to be a really special person that gets to sit in on the Queen's speech, right? That's a really exclusive club, the House of Lords. And yet, this table is offered by the King of the Universe. And it is open to everyone. And people of every station, people of every walk of life, are not only invited to receive it, but to receive it together. No matter who you are, no matter where you came from, Jesus makes this table available. And that is got what, this is what's got Paul so angry. This is what he's got, got him so upset. Because as we sort of surmise from the passage I read to you, they probably didn't do church on Sunday morning. They probably did it in the evening. Why? Because if the sun is up, then slaves work. And the body of Christ, the gathered people of God, included very wealthy people and servants, slaves, and so, slaves would only be allowed to worship their God on their time, and that probably happened after the sun went down. And we can imagine further that they probably weren't gathering in a synagogue or in, and there was no church building to attend to, so they were probably meeting in somebody's home. And if they were meeting in somebody's home, it was probably one of the wealthier members of the church who actually had a home to host. And what Paul seems to be describing is a situation in which 
the wealthier folks who obviously have slaves to attend to them and who live at a relative life of leisure, well, they're in the interior rooms of the, of the house, and when the slaves finally get off of, away from their duties and are able to join, the party on the interior side has already started. And the wealthier members are already enjoying a really rich and festive party. It's like a bad picnic. Everybody brings their own food, but the poor folks are sort of left to eat their little bit of whatever they could, could, could bring with them while other people are feasting. And this, Paul says, is completely not in keeping with the holy awe that we are to have when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is his great concern. This is his great concern. Now, if you read the uh, chapter 11, you'll notice that it's, frankly, a very confusing text. It begins talking about the relationship of men and women. And we can't quite follow why, how he gets from the conversation about men and women to talking about the Lord's Supper and what it means to, to live in this holy awe around the embodied love that is Jesus Christ present at the Lord's Supper. But it seems to be that Paul sees all of this in one piece in this way. That is, in the way that the Corinthians seem to have been trying to blur the distinctions between men and women, and therefore missing the vital ways in which men and women are created equally but differently and therefore interdependently in the way that that whole issue seems to be glossed over when it comes to issues of class and wealth, the church is accentuating those differences and really heightening how much, how different people are from one another. And Paul says you're totally missing the point about what it means to be the worshiping people of God, what it means to be present with Christ and to be Christ. Christ is here. Amen? What if I told you that Christ is here in three distinct and important ways? Three ways, at least. Christ is present whenever the Lord's Supper is served. First, Christ is present because we believe as the resurrected Lord, he, is not, he was not the host just for the last supper. He is the host for every supper that we celebrate. He is risen, therefore he is present by the power of his Holy Spirit. And when I get the privilege of standing behind the table and taking the bread and breaking it and pouring the cup, when I do that, I don't do it as a person the, uh, a, a religious authority figure who gets to control this. I'm only standing in for Jesus. He's the host. Follow? That's why, that's why Paul's so careful to describe this is what happened. This is what I got. He said, I received this from the Lord. I passed it directly to you. No commentary. This is what I heard. This is what I understand happened at that table. And, and and just those of us, just to remember, he wasn't there. He describes himself as the apostle untimely born. He didn't get to be among the original 12 at that meal. He heard it described to him, but he even understands that 
that what happened at that meal is what is to happen every time the people of God gather. So Jesus is the host. But as a perfect host, as an extraordinary host, Jesus is to provide something to the guests. He wants to give the very best he can give on behalf of God. And therefore, just simple food will not do. There is no meal opulent enough. There is no physical thing nourishing enough to really be appropriate for the work. And so what does Jesus do? He says, I am giving you not simply bread and cup. I am giving you me. Jesus is present as the host, and we believe that Jesus is present as the meal. This is my body. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. I am giving you in this place me. And isn't it obvious that Jesus has not chosen to reveal himself to embody his kingship with crowns and scepters and thrones and, 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 fancy, and fancy rooms. But he's chosen to reveal himself and to make himself present in the most common things possible so that anyone and everyone can come to it. It's as if Jesus is trying to say, I am in all of it. And whenever you see a loaf of bread, whenever you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, whenever you sit at a table with friends and a glass of wine is poured for you, whenever you see these incredibly common things, I want you to remember me and remember that you are part of me. And that's the third way. Jesus is the host. Jesus is the meal. And who are you? gathered people of God. Paul will say it over and over again. You, he says, now drawn together around this table, you become the, what? Body of Christ. Jesus Christ is present as the host, as the meal, as the guests. See, you're starting to sense now why Paul is so agitated. He's like, Jesus is with you every time you show up and you act like fools at this party. Every time you fail to see that you are made uniquely as individuals and that collectively you are infinitely more than you can imagine and that you cannot live without each other. Men cannot live without women. Rich cannot live without poor. Poor cannot live without rich. None of these distinctions that you are making or ignoring miss the beauty of God's created diversity. Christ is in all of it and drawing you all together in unity around it and making you one so that you, having gathered around this meal, will then be dispersed from it out into the world. To do what? To be Christ. To be the embodied love of God in the world. This is no ordinary meal, friends. It is infinitely more than we can imagine. And so, 
Paul will say, in essence, check your motives. Test your hearts. Come in holy awe. When we come together as a congregation, what are, what are, what are our motivations? Do we come with an anticipation that we are now fully being caught up into the love and purposes of God? Or are we just consumers, customers of religious goods and services, coming in wondering if we're going to receive a good worship service or if next Sunday we should go someplace else where maybe we'll get a better one? We are called to examine our motives. We're called to test our hearts. Paul says, some of you, once the time for this sacred meal happens, once everybody's had their whatever meal they get to have, and, and there comes this time to share in this holy meal, some of you are already drunk. You're already full. I heard uh, somebody recently mentioned to me, uh, I didn't grow up Catholic, but she did, and she said that uh, when she grew up in her Catholic church, they were, there was a strong, you were instructed not to eat for three hours before receiving communion. There was a, such, a, such a concern about blending this meal with brunch <laughs> that, that you've got to keep those things really, really separate, Right? So what Paul's saying is some of you have already shown up to this meal full when what you really need is to show up empty. To test our hearts is to recognize, that, to ask ourselves, am I coming into this place? Am I coming to receive this experience out of a place of emptiness and humility and need? Or am I coming to it out of a sense of privilege and entitlement? Do I now accept this experience as commonplace? Oh, yeah, it's communion Sunday. Oh, gosh, I got to get up and I got to march down the aisle. And, oh, man, I hope I don't spill. And I hope the people in front of me don't stick their fingers in the cup. That's icky. And, oh, yeah, nobody's ever said that to me. Right? That we... we do, do, we ha- do, our, do we come to this experience with our hearts and our hands empty? Because we know that we could bring so much of ourselves, couldn't we? We could bring so much of our ego and so much of our pride and so much of, our, our, of how good I am and, and isn't God lucky to have me on his team. And what Paul wants to say is to test your hearts and know that if you can connect to your poverty, then you're connecting to Jesus who connected to you in his poverty. And more importantly, when you go out into the world and experience the poverty that you see surrounding you, you can then relate to that as well. To not isolate and insulate ourselves from the poverty of the world around us, but to fully embrace it and say, this world is impoverished apart from God's provision. And God's provision is sufficient. All of Christ is present here to test our hearts. And I acknowledge that it's difficult, but to come 
when we gather around the Lord's table to come with holy awe. And holy awe isn't just sort of a veneer of the magical or, in the case of the Queen's speech, uh, uh, a sense of like the, the larger-than-lifeness. There's nothing larger than life about it. But there is an awe that comes when we've come to recognize just how profoundly we need one another. It's the kind of holy awe, frankly, that we saw during the fires up in the North Bay. A holy awe that's that when, when we see or hear that people that we know, people that we love, or people who are just like us have lost absolutely everything. It's the holy awe we see when one family who didn't lose their home is doing everything they can to care for all the, their neighbors and friends who did lose theirs. It's the holy awe that, that leads us to want to do everything we can here when we, go, when we go back to our homes after church today and we just look around and look at, all, look at our roof, look at our doors, look at our windows, look at our stuff, and think, my gosh, I can't believe it's all, I'm so blessed. I'm so fortunate that I have, and I'm so aware at this moment of people who don't have anything. It's all gone. That, friends, is holy awe. And it's that kind of holy awe that Paul believes we, when we understand that Christ is present, fully present in the meal, as the host, in the gathered people, it's that holy awe that says we are part of something so much larger than we realize. And it's often tragedy, isn't it, that, that reminds us of that. It's often, it's not, we don't, we don't, re, we don't really get that in the parties we don't get that in the wild celebrations. We get that in the solemn moments of gathering, which is why Paul says, and every time you do this, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes. To proclaim the Lord's death is to celebrate. Yeah, it's to celebrate, but it's a solemn celebration filled with holy awe. We are to embody. We are to be the full, complete, awe-inspiring embodiment of God's love through Jesus Christ. This table is a means of grace to that end, but let us never forget the end. You are part of something far greater than you realize. Part of a mystery that it continues to unfold through time and space every time we gather. May we, as God's gathered people, as the body of Christ, always and continually before we come to this place, test our hearts. May we always look to the left and look to the right and say, who's with me? Who's here today? And how does this make me part of them? And how does this make them part of me? And to hold that in reverent love. This, friends, 
is what it means to live an embodied love. Let us pray. To you, loving God, our Father, Christ gave his full self for your glory. And in love, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending your Holy Spirit that we too may enter into that divine love. We so do long to be the full embodiment of your love in the world. We want to be known by your love. We want to be known as that loving place, that place where when people come, they experience the love of God. And, when, and wherever we go, having left this place, the love of God is made manifest in our lives. Remind us, whenever we gather at this table, of who you are in us. Remind us of the solemn celebration and make us more fully your people when we gather. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.